Hello, it's Tuesday, February the 8th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Do you know the secret of keeping youthful skin? We're going to tell you, and it's all to do with sunblock, even in the middle of winter. Bumper profits for BP. Think about that as you fill up your car. They've made £10 billion. Vladimir Putin has raised the prospect of nuclear war if the Ukraine joins NATO, which, of course, it won't. But first, the digital minister says the government, after all, is going to revive plans to make pornographic websites check the age of users. I'll be talking to an online expert who says the plan is completely unworkable. So the government has revived its plans to make pornographic websites check the age of users as part of the online safety bill. The digital minister, Chris Philp, out on the broadcast rounds today said parents deserve peace of mind that their children are protected online from seeing things no child should see. Children's charities have welcomed the revised plans, but critics say the bill will lead to an erosion of privacy. Joining me now is Jim Killick, who's executive director of Open Rights Group. Jim, I am not don't know why the government has decided to revive these plans, but Ofcom will be given powers to fine or block websites that fail to comply with the age verification rule. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying here, we're, we're talking about things like Google image search or Google search in general or Reddit or Twitter, not just porn sites. You know, the, these kind of sites like Twitter, um, you know, you, you can see adult content on it. Um, and so the government is saying, well, tough Twitter, tough Google, if you want people to be able to access uh, adult content on your website, then on your service, then you're going to have to age verify all of your users. And I, th- I think that's where the government's going really, really wrong. I mean. It's one thing to say that Pornhub or some other pornographic website should uh, verify the age of its users. It's quite another when you're talking about Reddit and Google. So, you know, this I think is quite an extreme measure. And, you know, the the, the quote that you read out, you know, the idea that you're going to give parents peace of mind, that is why they're trying to do it so expansively. But it also makes it pretty ridiculous. And of course, the truth is that parents will never be able to um, comprehensively say that that children will not find adult material on the internet. I mean, it's a, a ridiculous claim to make. It's just just not attainable. So, I think the other thing that really worries me is that government has said nothing about what the regulations around privacy are going to be here, and the idea that you collect a list of all the things that somebody has visited on pornographic websites and use that commercially and link it strongly to somebody's identity and that that doesn't need regulation, I think that is madness. And you just imagine what is going to happen if uh, that data leaks out. You know, some vicar is w- watching um, BDSM videos. Um, a Muslim cleric is into gay porn. Um, a child whose family have uh, you know, extreme Christian or Islamic views on sexuality don't believe in sexual marriage or gay sex or any of those other things and they're into one of those things that person and their family what what is going to happen to them these are the sorts of circumstances that will arise if this data is collected and then it leaks and if if everybody in the country we talk about 20 million people in the UK who access these kind of sites 
their data potentially leaks, you know, you could end up with, uh, you know, marital breakups, uh, family disputes, and suicides. It's all, it's all within the realm of possibilities. So you have to regulate this in a way where that data is not collected and is destroyed and cannot be used. And the government is not talking in that sort of way. It's just saying, we'll let the industry sort it out. Well, thanks very much. Well, and I suppose what the government will argue, um, Jim, is that parents in particular fear that children are accessing porn too easily, too simply. They're too young to be seeing it. And often um, the porn casts women in particular in a negative light. So the government has to do yeah. something to try to prevent that. Well, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't think anyone would argue that the government isn't entitled to do something. The government is entirely in, uh, entitled to try to take some action to um, make some, uh, you know, measures to make it harder to access sites or to potentially age verify pornographic sites. It just needs to do it properly. It needs to make sure that it's done in a way where people's privacy is respected and people aren't going to be put at risk of, uh, you know, really dramatic life consequences. Uh, but it is not proceeding in that manner. It's just t saying, well, something must be done. We don't really care what, we'll just do it. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that is in the slightest bit responsible. Now, you remember why these plans collapsed before. It was a mixture of the difficulties of the practicalities, because it, it is a very hard thing to implement, and the fact that there were no serious safety measures to ensure that data didn't leak. And so... I, I fear the government is just repeating the same set of mistakes and is going to run into the same set of problems. And the campaigners who really want to see child safety improved are actually going to find that, yet again, this hasn't been done properly and it can't be implemented as a result. Yeah. Um, uh, so the answer is, in your view, how do they get round this, Jim, so they can satisfy your concerns over privacy? Yeah, you, it's not actually that difficult. Um, you, it, it simply means that you have to state the standards by which verification happens, which is to say the user must not be linked to an identity, there must not be persistent tracking, the data must be destroyed within you know, hours or days, um, and you, you also make sure that there isn't a single company dominating uh, the whole system and that people can choose the safest uh, and trustworthy systems that they wish to use. These are not difficult things to do, but they require attention to detail from the government and a, and a genuine desire to make sure that this is safe. Um, and I'm afraid that right now the government is far more interested in headlines than getting this policy right. Do you think um, this is cast in stone now? After all, Jim, uh, this last time they tried this, it fell apart in four months, if I recall, back when David Cameron was Prime Minister. <laughs> I took a bit longer than that. It took, I would say, the better part of two and a half years to fall apart. And there was a all lot right. of head-scratching. There were, there were two or three rounds of consultations and um, if eventually uh, they, they knocked it on the head. But, uh, I mean, you know, there was a lot of time spent and wasted on, on, on it, and, and I'm afraid that's probably what will happen again. But you're quite right to, to say, you know, is this going to fall apart? Because I'm afraid when it comes to Internet policy, that is generally what happens in the UK. Things are legislated. Nobody's got a clue what they're demanding. They just think it will be popular. And, and when it comes down to it, it it's, a, it's a nightmare. And the other thing I would say, right, is that your children 
particularly teenagers, are going to want to access pornography. And in the same way as they drink alcohol um, and they take drugs. You know, this isn't something which you can stop teenagers from doing. So, you know, relying on technology as a safety valve to regulate what teenagers do, I mean, it's, it's just a joke. You know, the only way that you can protect children or teenagers from um, pornography, drugs, or alcohol is to educate them about it. And, and that's a combination of how parents talk to their, te their teenagers and how schools do education. Um, and, you know, the sooner we come to a realization that those are the things which really matter, uh, the quicker we'll get to a point where children have a safer internet experience. The more we say technology is going to fix this, uh, these sites will become inaccessible, I mean, the longer it'll be that uh, teenagers particularly um, suffer the consequences of uh, in encountering material they don't fully understand, and, and, and but simply because they're not being talked to. And that, that problem is just not going to go away, I'm afraid. It, it, we need to face up to it. We need to think about how parents and schools talk to kids to make them safe. All right, that's Jim Killick. He's executive director of the Open Rights Group on the problems he says with the government's reforms to the online safety bill. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to the Andrew Pearce Show for free in full, along with our podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So Boris Johnson is facing calls from some Tory MPs to apologise to Keir Starmer in the latest twist in the row over Jimmy Savile. But number 10 say Boris has no intention of backing down. The Labour leader was targeted by protesters near Parliament yesterday, shouting allegations about Starmer, claiming he was, quotes, protecting paedophiles and some branding him a traitor. Joining me now is Will Moy, who's the chief executive of Full Fact. Will, um, just so we can up remind people what happened, this, when Boris Johnson was responding in the Commons to the report by Sue Gray, he threw at Keir Starmer, who was sat down in his seat, this is a man who, when he was director of public prosecutions, did not or failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile. That's right, yeah. And, um, some Conservative MPs, MPs on his own side, have interpreted that as a smear on Keir Starmer um, as essentially allowing abuse to go unchecked. We all remember what Savile has, has now been realised to have done. Um, of course, what he said is not explicit about Mr. Starmer's role. Mr. Starmer was in charge of a crime criminal prosecution service yeah. when it made the decision not to prosecute Savile, but he wasn't the lawyer re reviewing the case. And actually, he later commissioned an investigation which criticised the way the case was handled, and he accepted the findings of that investigation. So although he was overall responsible uh, for the organisation which made the decision, it wasn't his decision. The report was done by Alison Levitt QC and she said, didn't she, in response to the fact that the police had interviewed Savile back in 20, 2009, I think they interviewed him for an hour, about four alleged offences, two against 14-year-olds, one a 17-year-old and one a girl in her early 20s. Levitt's report, in when the full scale of Savile's abuse came to light, concluded that in three of those cases, the, the Crown Prosecution Service should have prosecuted. She she felt that uh, a prosecution could have been built um, if if the prosecutors worked with victims, if they'd have let them know that there were other victims who might be willing to come forward. She felt that a prosecution could have been made and that they didn't try hard enough to make that prosecution 
possible. And, and, and as a result of the uh, Levitt inquiry, Keir Starmer, then the, still the director of the public prosecutions, issued an apology uh, to the victims of Jimmy Savile, not saying it was his decision, but as head of the CP, as head of the Crown Prosecution Service, he, ex, in a sense, accepted overall responsibility. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes, he did. He said he, he would like to take the opportunity to apologise for the shortcomings and the part played by the CPS in these cases. He also said, quite interestingly, these were errors of judgment by experienced and committed police officers and a prosecuting lawyer acting in good faith and attempting to apply the correct principles. That makes the findings of Miss Levitt's report more profound and calls for a more robust response. And later they updated their guidance on how to prosecute child sexual abuse, um, partly in response to this report. After the, the initial row last week, Boris Johnson subsequently clarified his remarks, Will, and he said he wasn't talking about uh, Starmer personally, but he was talking about the fact Starmer as head of the Crown Prosecution Service. Did the distinction he make work for you? Well, that's ultimately up to, up to your listeners to decide. Yeah. It's an important distinction. Um, and it's clear that, unfortunately, some people, some angry and violent people yesterday, have interpreted it as Mr. Starmer personally and essentially as him being complicit in something that something terrible when he wasn't even involved in the decision about prosecuting it. Um, so I think what I would say is if you're going to throw around the criticisms of anybody on such a topic as vile sexual abuse, you should do it carefully and clearly. And clearly in this case, the Prime Minister was not careful or clear in what he said. And of course, his supporters say he makes the point that uh, he was saying Starmer is as responsible for what went on at the CPS as he was responsible for everything that went on in Downing Street during Partygate even if he wasn't there and I think if he'd have said that as simply and clearly as that we wouldn't be having this conversation now a prime minister's words matter and they start conversations and they can start rumors as well um, and on a topic like this we it was predictable that what he said would get the online response it did and it was predictable that that would turn into some people potentially um getting angry and, and taking that anger into the real world as we've now seen happen so um i do think it's enormously important that on such a sensitive topic people are very careful with both what they say and how they say it all right that's will moy he is the chief executive of full fact Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Don't forget to get in touch by tweeting us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So Vladimir Putin has warned nuclear war could break out if, and it's a big if, Ukraine joins NATO. He's also accused the West of disregarding 30 years of Russian concerns about NATO's eastward expansion. The Russian president hinted progress has been made after he met Emmanuel Macron, the French president. And this, all can, this is all as Russian troops amassing close to Ukraine's borders. Joining me now is Vladislav Zubok, professor of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Zubok, there isn't much imminent prospect, is there, of the Ukraine joining NATO. So is this just sabre rattling by Putin? Uh, well, I have uh, good news to say and bad news. I will start with a good one. We're not, definitely not, uh, going back to the nightmares of the Cold War. 
such as the right. Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Or I should remind my uh, listeners that uh, 40 years ago we had a Euro Missile Crisis and the Soviet leadership spoke about the nuclear war because they were afraid that the U United States might kind of surprisingly attack the Soviets. So we're not back to that. But the bad news, news is that nuclear weapons and... Uh, you know, an invocation of nukes, uh, uh, that is returning uh, as a political instrument uh, in, in, in the games that are played today around, uh, you know, be between Moscow and Western capitals, I should say. Right. Now, this, th now he's, meant, he's talked about the threats of nuclear weapons for the first time, and this was after footage emerged of what appears to be, I think they're called Kinsal Nuclear Capable hypersonic missiles in the country's westernmost territory, Kaliningrad, which is about 800 miles from Britain, of course. So is this part and parcel of what he's doing? He's talking the talk about nuclear weapons and deliberately moving missiles that the West can see, so the West can see what he's doing. Well, this, I don't think this is anything new. Uh, Vladimir right. Putin mentioned those supersonic uh, new weaponry before. What is new here, he deliberately tries to catch attention of the West. It's, I wouldn't qualify it as a saber-rattling, uh, but rather a, well, if it's saber-rattling, it serves some political goal. And the goal is to catch Western attention. And if you link it to his complaint that for 30 years the West refused to listen to Russia's uh, security concerns, then you get closer to this enigma of him doing it. Um, you know, I think it's quite simple, frankly. The West is now building up a deterrence of Russia in the area where the West is the strongest, economy and finance, a package of economic sanctions. So uh, Putin uh, has, of course, financial reserves, but he realizes that Russia next to the entire West is uh, a small power. But that, what, what vexes him is the constant reminder from the West that Russia is a power in decline, a regional power. And uh, so he, he sort of reminds the West, hey, uh, there's such thing as nuclear uh, uh, weapons. And as the Americans used to say, a, 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 a cold gun uh, equal, you know, makes people equal. So I'm carrying this nuclear cold on my hip right now. So you should be respectful. You should pay attention. Do you think it will work, his strategy? Uh, it's not a strategy, really. It's a means to, 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 to a tactical goal. The tactical right. goal of Putin is to, to raise an agenda that the West always uh, rejected. It, it, it's a remarkable agenda. It's sort of like a reset of the entire architecture of European security that had been constructed after the Soviet collapse, mostly by the Americans and uh, NATO that the Americans uh, led. So uh, how realistic is for Putin to achieve this goal? You know, most of experts dismiss it. Uh, but we should not underestimate Vladimir Putin. Uh, people compare uh, him to a billiard ball player, to, to, to whatever other sports. I think he's above all a judo player, a yeah. martial art from Japan that, you know, makes him expect to 
the, the opposite side to expose itself to something that the weaker side can do. So he definitely knows he's the weaker side. He deeply believes he's, he is on the defensive, not offensive, because the West is so much stronger. But he prepares unexpected moves that uh, we should be watchful for. And just finally, Professor, you're a long-time observer of this scene. In your view, is it really likely, once the Winter Olympics are over in China, we know that Putin was out there with President Xi just a few days ago, is it really possible or likely that he will make some form of military incursion into the Ukraine? Uh, nothing for me indicates it. In fact, you know, Putin complains that the Americans are almost goading him into this kind of action. Um, I think the Western policymakers and the Western media uh, somehow are prisoners of uh, a the Munich syndrome and of of 1938, obviously um, of appeasement of Hitler and be that example of uh, doing nothing when Russia uh, opposed uh, Georgia in 2008, right during the Olympic Games in in Beijing at the time. So uh, Mm. one analogy, two analogies, and uh, we have this almost, you know, a, a, a chorus of people warning oh, if it happened before, it may happen again. I don't think so. And nothing uh, that I know about Putin as a personality or preparations on the Russian side indicate that this will happen. Very interesting, and I hope you're right. That's Vladislav Zubok, who's Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thanks so much for joining us. So it's uh, time for our regular City Update now with Ruth Sunderland, who is Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. So, Ruth, as we're all facing these astronomical energy bills, we see BP, the latest oil giant, to announce bumper profits, and they really are huge. They absolutely are huge, Andrew. They've hit an eight-year high, almost $13 billion, so that's around £9.5 billion. It's a lot of money, so that would go quite a long way um, in solving some of the problems that people have got at the moment with their with their energy bills. Um, so mm. it's very sort of inconvenient timing. Now, having said all of that, this situation isn't perhaps quite as, as simplistic as it seems. Um, so last year, BP made a loss that was in the same sort of, of range. It made a huge loss because oil prices, which drive the profit, are, are notoriously volatile and, and they don't really have much control over that. Um, what, what's happening today is that BP sh- BP's profits and the profits at Shell, which were equally just humongous, have prompted people like Ed Miliband and the Lib Dems to start demanding a windfall tax. Windfall tax, yeah. Windfall tax, which superficially sounds, you know, well, why not? You know, these are nasty big oil companies and they've got these profits that they haven't really done anything to earn. They are just a bit of a a jackpot. Um, Now, the problem with that, Rishi Sunak has very sensibly, in my view, um, said that, you know, I'm not going to go there. Um, and I think the reason for that is is that a windfall tax brings in a one-off haul of money, but it's not actually a policy. It's just a hit. It doesn't actually solve the underlying problems in the energy market that have caused people's bills to, to go up. And also, it kind of assumes that there are two different sets of people here, that there are, on the one hand, big, nasty, old, bad BP shareholders 
And then on the other hand, families struggling to pay their bills. But the problem is actually these are the same people because we all invest in BP and Shell through our pension funds. So if we windfall tax Shell and BP, we're actually just taxing ourselves. So it's one pocket or the other pocket. Um, so, yeah. so actually, you know, it, it, I'd love to say there was a magic wand to solve the household energy problems, but unfortunately there isn't. You know, it's it's really, really difficult problem. These, these profits, though, I mean, they are obscene. Um, the you know, that, that, yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, and I think it will probably um, reinforce Labour's view for a windfall tax, uh, um, Ruth, whatever the impact it has on the pension fund. Uh, that's Ruth Sunderland, who is our group business editor here at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. So if you are just spinning up your car in the next few days, just remember BP have made a profit of almost £10 billion. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. So we know skincare is the key to a youthful appearance, but what methods are scientifically proven to keep your skin looking youthful? And just how important is sunblock? And should we wear it when the sun isn't shining? The beauty expert Claire Coleman has spoken to the expert in a piece for the Mail today, and I find it fascinating. Claire, it's we've effectively got to wear sun cream all year round, even in the middle of winter, even if it's cold outside. Yep, exactly that, exactly that, Andrew. And like, I am so delighted that this message is getting across because I spent years in the industry with people going, nothing really works, does it? And if I'm going to do one thing, what should I do? And the one thing that I always say is sun protection. Something like 80% of the damage that we see on our skin as ageing is associated with, and it's, it's a bit, probably a bit of a misnomer to call it sun protection, but UV protection and exposure to UV rays. So yeah, if there's one thing that you're going to do to look after your skin, both from a kind of aesthetic point of view, but also from a health point of view, it's using a broad spectrum UV protective cream or sun cream, as you'd like to call it, um, all year round. It's interesting because um, you talked to Dr. Zaina Willsmore, who's a dermatology specialist at King's College, and who, who says, I thought this was fascinating, if you can see outside without a torch, then ultraviolet light is there, which means you need to be wearing skin protection. So unless it's dark, we've got to wear it the whole time. Yeah, that's right. And also, even when you're inside, which I think is the thing that a lot of people don't really realise, that although you're not going to get burnt, even on the hottest sunniest day if you're sitting inside and there's a pane of glass in between you and the outside world uva which is one of the um, parts of the sun spectrum that we don't kind of see a reaction from our skin to but has a huge impact on things like cancer on things like damage to skin which causes wrinkles and things like that can penetrate through glass and so even if you're inside if you're sitting next to a window then yeah i would normally advise that people are wearing it as well and when you're driving? And when you're driving, yeah, there's some amazing pictures of long distance lorry drivers in the States where they have, I mean, also, you know, in America, they're most likely to have the windows up. They're not going to have them down because they're going to have the aircon on. But one side of their face is much more affected by sun exposure because it's the side that um, is by the window. And so they get much more sun exposure on one side of the face. And you can really see kind of the difference in aging from one side to the other. And I always thought that the that glass, that windows, protected you from harmful UV rays. Clearly, I was wrong. UVB you will be protected from because UVB right. can't get through glass. But UVA, um, no, unfortunately not. And as I say, okay. in a way, that's trickier because it, it, you don't burn from UVA. You tend to burn from UVB. OK, now what number factor should we be wearing? 
on sun, sun cream? Because it goes so, up to 50, 60, doesn't it? It does go up to 50, 60. Um, I mean, well, in, this, in the UK, we have 50 and we have 50 plus. Um, and so I have to say, me personally, I wear a broad spe- spectrum 50 every single day of the year. Do you really? And the reason why I do that is because I just think habit is one of the most important yes, things. And yes, if you I get, get into a habit of doing it, then it's just it's the same thing as brushing your teeth. This is what you do every single day, day in, day out. And the reason why I opt for 50 as opposed to anything else is because um, the sun protection that you get is going to diminish throughout the day. You're going to touch your face. It's going to, yeah. you know, the amount of protection is going to come down. And so I figure that if I'm wearing 50 first thing in the morning, if I go out at lunch to pick up a sandwich or go for a walk in the afternoon, I've probably got some some form of protection left over. Um, and also the way that um, sun creams and UV protection is formulated has changed so much. I think so many listeners might think, oh, 50, it sounds like it's going to be really thick. It's going to be really white. It's going to be really unpleasant to use. But that's just not the case anymore. And just finally, what about beauty sleep? Is that a myth, beauty sleep? Or can it stop us aging a bit? Um, I, unfortunately, it's not a myth for anyone who's not getting a huge amount of sleep out there at the moment. That's me. Um, that's me. <laughs> I think that's everyone. I think everyone seems to have problems with their sleep at the moment. Um, I think the thing is that, you know, the odd night of not getting great sleep is not going to really cause you huge problems. But the problem is that um, chronic stress and in particular a hormone called cortisol, which is associated with chronic stress, uh, can have an impact on your skin. And sleeping is one way of bringing down levels of those cortisol um that cortisol hormone and so if you do have disrupted sleep then i think you may see kind of problems on your skin and if that happens over a prolonged period of time that can um kind of accelerate the pace at which we age unfortunately claire i've got so much sunblock at home and you know what i'm going to do i'm going to put it buy my electric toothbrush it's going to be just like you say if you brush your teeth you do it every day don't we on goes the sunblock you've converted That's me brilliant i'm delighted it's, one convert. it's probably one too time. late though it's probably no, too late i'm already late. rattled and aged and Never too late. All right. Never I too believe late. you. That's, that's Claire Coleman. Do read her piece today. It's fascinating. Also, good to drink, eat berries, good to eat tomatoes. But the main thing, the real message here is put your sunblock on. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.